1: Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon and English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. We're progressing through this book series, going from volume 2 all the way through to volume 13, and then we're going to be starting over and continuously studying these chapters. The entire program would take about a year and a half to go through all the chapters and all the books. So it takes time to gradually learn and gradually reflect and gradually practice what the Buddha is sharing in his teachings. And that's what this program is designed to do so that you can just kind of drip feed the teachings into the mind over the course of a week. And then we can meet together in order to discuss the teachings. The way that we do this is we start out with a brief meditation just to kind of prepare the mind for the class and then we'll start with a student reading chapter 11 today. We're in volume 8, The Foremost Householders. We'll read chapter 11, and then after somebody reads it, I will share any teachings on that chapter, and then open up to any questions that you guys might have, and we'll progress through all the chapters this way from chapter 11 all the way to chapter 20. So I'd like to welcome all of you, whether you're joining us for the first time or you've been joining us regularly, this is a great place for you to learn the teachings of the Buddha using his own words rather than just kind of following or believing what one person or another says. Instead, you can look to the original source text of what the Buddha actually said because he's the discoverer the declarer and the originator of the path to enlightenment. So by basing your practice on the words of the Buddha, this way you know what he did teach and what he didn't teach, and you can learn, reflect, and practice those teachings and continually progress towards enlightenment on the path to enlightenment that the Buddha discovered, declared, and he is the originator of. So if you'd like to go ahead and start with meditation, then afterwards we'll go ahead and get started with the actual class of reading the individual chapters and sharing any teachings on those so if you'd like to take a position in the seated lying or standing position those are kind of the three positions that we teach here in the online version there's also walking position as well but a little bit more challenging to do while we're in a fixed position for learning online But go ahead and make your lower body comfortable the hands and arms should be comfortable on the lap And then the upper body should be nice and erect. Close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Just start establishing a nice, gradual breath. I'm not going to provide a whole lot of guidance here, just enough to get you started. Breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. You're welcome to join along with the chants, otherwise I'll be back with some more guidance after the chanting. <laughs>
2: Savarkato imahakirvatthatam Sāvāka-sāṅkho-sāṅkhāṅ-namā-mīn. Nāp-mār-hā-sā-bhāk-vātto bhak ara tto samma sam Nap more her sab hako ato. Arahato is some masa putasa. Nap more her sab hako ato. Arahato is some ITI BISO MAHGOWA ARAKHANG SAMA SAMU TO SAMUNO SEKHA TORO Anu tero puri sa sati manusana
1: be breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Remember this is your practice so your breath isn't going to necessarily sync up with the guidance that I provide. Wherever you get to the next inhale, breathe in through the nose experiencing the full breath. Gradual inhale, and exhale. Wherever you observe that the mind is not on the breath, cut that off and let it go and come back to the breath. The mind should be fixated on the sound of the breath or sensation of air moving into the nose. The breath is the present moment, breathing in and out.
2: hang some man. Paco arahato Ara ato some sampo arahato Nap more sapato, Ara to some massa potasa, E.T. Piso, mahako, Ara ca caranang sammun sakatorokawito anupetropuri sa dama satatawa manussana
1: Okay, just a short little meditation there just to kind of top up the mind a little bit, prepare it for today's class. I'd like to welcome all of you for today's class. We've got Miranda and Manal who are moderating for us today. If uh, any of you guys would like to volunteer for reading any of the chapters, if you're in Zoom, all you need to do is put that into the Zoom comment section. Manal and Miranda will see that and be sure you get an opportunity to read any of the chapters. Today we're studying chapters 11 through 20. So we're going to be going through each of those, having a student read each one of the chapters, and then I'll share a bit of teachings and then any questions that you guys have will open up to any and all questions, whether you're in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. You just put those questions into the comment section. Our moderators will see those. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So I'll just go ahead and switch over here to being able to display the, the chapters of the book and then give you guys a chance to start reading chapter by chapter. All right. So I'll turn things over to when in Miranda. Yes. Teacher David we will go to Nick for chapter
3: 11.
1: All right. Welcome Nick. Welcome teacher David. Hope everyone's doing well. Indeed. The foremost, the best, the distinguished, the supreme
4: and the finest householder. Householder, the one enjoying sensual pleasures, who seeks wealth righteously without violence and makes himself joyful and pleased, and shares it, and does meritorious notorious deeds, and uses that wealth without being tied to it, obsessed with it, and blindly absorbed in it. Seeing the danger in it, and understanding the escape, he may be praised on four grounds. The first ground on which he may be praised is that he seeks wealth righteously, without violence. The second ground on which he may May be praised is that he makes himself joyful and pleased the third ground on which he may be praised is that he shares the wealth and does meritorious deeds the fourth ground on which he may be praised is that he uses that wealth without being tied to it obsessed with it and blindly absorbed in it seeing the danger in it and understanding the escape this person who enjoys sensual pleasures may be praised on these four grounds this householder is the foremost the best the distinguished the supreme and the finest kind of person who enjoys sensual pleasures just as from a cow comes milk from milk curd from curd butter from butter ghee and from ghee comes cream of ghee which is reckoned the foremost of all of these So, too, this kind of person who enjoys sensual pleasures is the foremost, the best, the distinguished, the supreme, and the finest of all those who seek wealth righteously, without violence, and having abandoned it, makes himself joyful and pleased, and shares the wealth and does meritorious deeds, and uses that wealth without being tied to it, obsessed with it, and blindly absorbed in it, seeing the danger in it, and understanding the escape."
1: All right. Thank you, Nick. So to understand this chapter, it's important to understand that a Buddha has done a significant amount of work in their own practice in order to get to the point where their mind is enlightened. You guys understand the challenge of getting to enlightenment with the guidance of a teacher and a community and resources and all this help. You understand how challenging that is. If you can imagine a Buddha doing this on their own, And progressing to the point where they're enlightened, it's just an amazing feat for somebody to accomplish and to be able to experience the results of that enlightened mind. Having liberated their mind, Buddha would know that the teachings that they're sharing and that they're delivering has the ability to liberate all of humanity's minds from this darkness, from this discontentedness or this suffering that is experienced on a day-by-day basis. So in terms of a Buddha, one of the best, most amazing things that anybody could ever do is support these teachings to come into the world. Because by supporting these teachings to come into the world through practicing merit or having meritorious deeds, what people are doing is they're supporting the teachings to come into the world to liberate people from suffering, from discontentedness, to no longer experience... Things like anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, and all these other discontent feelings. So in terms of a Buddha bringing their teachings into the world, they have the ability to share the teachings in the world, but other people are going to need to contribute to that. They themselves aren't going to be able to share the teachings with the entire world Instead, they share teachings with countless people during their lifetime, and then as those people experience enlightenment and a Buddha ultimately dies, it's up to those people to carry the teachings forward and ensure that they continue to reach masses and masses of people. So here the Buddha is explaining this kind of foremost householder, the supreme, the finest householder, and he's using this analogy of cow's milk you know, being turned into these higher and higher qualities, going from cow's milk to milk curd to curd butter to butter ghee to cream of ghee and so forth. Because during this lifetime, people would understand what that means because they would be making these products as part of living on a farm. So here the Buddha is explaining how, you know, a person who's living the household life, they're typically enjoying central pleasures they're going to need to acquire some amount of financial support in order to sustain their life. And he's encouraging household practitioners to do that righteously based on not causing harm to other beings. And he gives guidance as part of right livelihood, as part of the eightfold path of how to ensure that we're not causing harm through our livelihood and the way that we sustain our life. And here he just mentions it just briefly about having and acquiring wealth righteously without violence, right? This means without harm. But in his teachings of right livelihood, he gives much more details about what that means. And then he talks about here a household practitioner on the second grounds is one who is to be praised based on making themselves joyful and pleased, not requiring other people to do that because that would be a conditioned feeling and it's temporary. So if we can find joy and be pleased internally without anyone else needing to do that for us. Then we can maintain that joy and being pleased long term and ultimately permanently as an enlightened being. That if you require other people to create the joy in your mind, or you require external material possessions to create the joy in the mind, then that's just temporary. It's a conditioned pleasant feeling. So. The second grounds on which the Buddha praises a household practitioner is one who can make themselves joyful and pleased, just unconditioned joy and unconditioned being pleased. And then the third one here he talks about is sharing wealth with people. This is practicing generosity, but also doing meritorious deeds. For the Buddha, whenever he talks about merit or meritorious deeds, it's about sharing your time, effort, energy, and resources in order to continue the teachings into the world. Because again, that's one of the best things that could ever happen for the world or for all of humanity is that these teachings penetrate more and more and deeper and deeper into the world so that all of humanity can learn reflect, and practice, and ultimately get to this enlightened mental state where the mind's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Because if everybody in the world was enlightened, then the world would be utterly peaceful. There would be no such thing as murders, rapes, wars, uh, stealing, poverty, famine, you know, all kinds of things. We can go right on down the line of all these things that would be completely eliminated from the face of the earth through everybody learning and practicing in such a way to experience enlightenment. So by sharing our wealth through generosity, it helps our own mind to get to enlightenment through practicing generosity, eliminating craving, desire, attachment to wealth. And then by doing that in terms of creating merit to practice generosity with the intention of sharing these teachings into the world by making offerings to ordain practitioners or teachers or temples or retreat centers or places that are sharing these teachings, you are not only practicing generosity, but you're practicing it in a way that makes these teachings available for many more people than besides just you. So the Buddha is saying, you know, this is very praiseworthy for somebody to do this. And then the fourth one he talks about here is understanding that wealth can be used without being tied to it being obsessed by it, being blindly absorbed in it. Because oftentimes as we age and we start acquiring more and more wealth, we do get tied to it. We get obsessed by it. We, we almost have a certain amount of ego or arrogance watching our bank account grow. We get blindly absorbed into it. And this is where the Buddha says, you know, we need to see the danger in that. That if the mind is craving, desiring, and attached to this money and this wealth, thinking this is what completes us, this is what's going to create satisfaction in the mind, then we don't yet see the danger in it. We need to see the danger in being tied to the wealth. Where if there's craving, desire, attachment to hold on to the wealth, that's not beneficial for the mind. But also if we were complacent and we never did anything to acquire money, or if we just gave out our money to anybody and everybody without putting any thought or any wise decision-making behind it, that wouldn't be wise either. So we need to find that middle way. That's understanding the escape. Whenever you see the Buddha talking about the escape, he's talking about the Eightfold Path. That's like the escape hatch to all this discontentedness that is experienced in the unenlightened mind. So if you see the danger and craving and holding on to money and wealth, then you can start to understand the escape and how to live a good life where you need to acquire money and you need to acquire wealth, but yet you're not so obsessed by it and tied to it, blindly absorbed in it. And this is where the Buddha says, okay, these four things, if a householder or household practitioner is understanding of these and practicing these, this person is, you know, the foremost, the best, the distinguished, the supreme, the finest kind of person who enjoys sensual pleasures because As a household practitioner, you might not yet be to enlightenment because the enlightened being, while they're going to know that things are pleasurable, their mind is not going to be clinging to it. So the Buddha talks about household practitioners as being people who enjoy central pleasures. And this is the craving, desire, attachment, that if somebody was only going to make it to the first, second, or third stage of enlightenment during this life, then you know the least they could be doing is supporting the teachings to come into the world so that more and more people can actually experience enlightenment. But I would say that any household practitioner today can actually set their sights on attaining enlightenment as an Arahant and understand that there are definitely things in the world that you will enjoy, but the difference between being clinging to central pleasures versus knowing that something is enjoyable and participating in that is two different things. Whereas if you're participating in something that's enjoyable, and the mind's clinging to it and holding on to it, wanting it to be permanent, then that's where the mind's going to experience discontentedness. But if you experience something, you know that it's enjoyable, you know that it's pleasurable. But when it's over, it's over, and the mind's completely content with that. Or if you're not able to do that thing in the future, you're completely content with that that's somebody whose mind is liberated from central desire, that it's not tied, it's not obsessed, it's not clinging, it's not craving for these things to continue. And it knows the difference between craving versus walking the middle path. And that's what the Buddha is talking about here. Questions on this chapter?
3: We'll go to Nick.
4: Hello, teacher. Thank you, Manal. Teacher David, the last part you just said, I was wondering if you can give an example of that. Instead of um, the description, if you can give it like an example.
1: Yeah, I'll give you a couple examples. Let's just say you're on a holiday and you go out on a holiday and you're looking at a certain landscape and everybody's standing there and it's like, oh my goodness, this is so beautiful. And you're just looking at the landscape and then maybe the group leader is like, all right, guys, time to go. And then everyone's like, ah. Oh. You know this is the mind being discontent because it's holding on it doesn't want to move on it can't move on or if you are planning a vacation you need to go on vacation you'd like to go on vacation and then for one reason or another it gets canceled and now the mind's discontent that's because it's longing and yearning for these central pleasures or say that you have a certain dessert at a restaurant and you enjoy that dessert and you have that dessert whenever you go to that restaurant But now you come in the next time and they don't have that same dessert. Ah, now the mind's angry or frustrated. This is the mind clinging to the central pleasure. So the way that you fix that is that you don't allow the mind to have conditioned pleasant feelings. So when you go into the restaurant and you order the dessert and they have it, rather than getting excited and feeling all these, you know, excited, these conditioned pleasant feelings, you're just like, oh, you guys got chocolate cake today? Outstanding. Outstanding. I'll have a piece of chocolate cake and then when you have the piece of chocolate cake you know it tastes good you know it's enjoyable but you also know it's not permanent so you can enjoy that piece of chocolate cake while you're in the moment but you have to understand that it's not permanent that the next time you come it may not be there so that would be the difference between someone who's craving and clinging versus someone who's just enjoying the present moment the view or the fact that I'm going on vacation or a certain dessert, just enjoy it in the present moment and just know that it's not permanent and don't allow the mind to hold on to it. Because if it does, then it's going to experience discontentedness.
3: Teacher David, would you be able to expand on what um, examples would be meritorious deeds?
1: Sure. So meritorious deeds are things that you might do in order to support the teachings of the Buddha. So Remember, time, effort, energy, and resources. So you moderating today, all, this is merit, right? This is meritorious deeds that you're using your time, effort, energy, and resources in order to help these teachings come into the world. Or if somebody was going to do something like, right now we have a retreat that we're planning. Someone might decide to donate money in order to host the retreat or have the retreat be conducted, or there's people right now in our community that are sending out emails to various places around the US in order to share that we're having this retreat. This is creating merit. Or if you make a donation to purchase some books and share them somewhere about the teachings of the Buddha, this would be meritorious deeds. Or say you help out at a temple, just sweeping the temple, or you know maybe you're painting maybe you donate a little bit of money in order to pay for some electric or cleaning up of the temple things like this these are all meritorious deeds that someone can actually do and there's you know countless things like this that we need in order to continue the teachings into the world the only reason why we have these teachings now 2500 years later is because for 2,500 years, people have been slowly but surely making offerings, practicing generosity, and ensuring these teachings come into the world. Not because there's some grand plan or somebody told you to do it or asked you to do it, but just because people see a need, and when they see a need, they then make a generous offering And then that is what produces merit by bringing the the teachings into the world that your generosity of time, effort, energy or resources you're giving without any expectation of anything in return as a way to ensure that these teachings are able to continue to be supported and shared into the world. Thank you. You're welcome.
3: It doesn't look like there are any more questions for this chapter.
1: All right. So we'll go to chapter 12
3: go to miranda
5: more terrible and frightful than the great inferno monks there exists a hell named great inferno there whatever form one sees with the eye is undesirable never desirable unlovely never lovely disagreeable never agreeable whatever sound one hears with the ear is undesirable never desirable unlovely never lovely disagreeable never agreeable whatever odor one smells with the nose, whatever flavor one tastes with the tongue, whatever physical object one touches with the body, whatever mental object one recognizes with the mind, is undesirable, never desirable, unlovely, never lovely, disagreeable, never agreeable. When this was said, a certain monk said to the perfectly enlightened one, that inferno, venerable sir, is indeed terrible. That inferno is indeed very terrible. But is there, Venerable Sir, any other Inferno more terrible and frightful than that one? There is, Monk. But what, Venerable Sir, is that Inferno inferno more terrible and frightful than that one? Those ascetics that were Brahmins, Monk, who do not understand as it really is, this is discontentedness. This is the cause of discontentedness. This is the elimination of discontentedness. This is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness they delight in volitional formations, choices and decisions, that lead to birth, in volitional formations that lead to aging, in volitional formations that lead to death, in volitional formations that lead to sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair. Delighting in such volitional formations, they generate volitional formations that lead to birth, generate volitional formations that lead to aging, generate volitional formations that lead to death, Generate volitional formations that lead to sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair. Having generated such volitional formations, choices, and decisions, they are burnt by the inferno of birth, burnt by the inferno of aging, burnt by the inferno of death, burnt by the inferno of sorrow, grief, pain, pleasure, and despair. They are not freed from birth, aging, death, not freed from sorrow, grief, pain, pleasure, and despair not free from discontentment
1: I say all right Thank you Miranda So here the Buddha is actually giving a little bit of insight into hell and explaining you know what's going on there and he's explaining how everything is undesirable, not never desirable, unlovely, never lovely, disagreeable, never agreeable whether it's something that we see that we hear, smell, taste, an object that touches the body or any mental objects. These are the six sense bases that we're actually going to study as part of the next book, volume nine. These are the six sense bases and how the mind experiences discontentedness. So he's explaining how horrible, you know, hell is. And you'll get some more description on this when you get into volume 11, which is titled the realms of existence. You'll learn more about the different hells and things like that, that he described. So this ordained practitioner asks, you know, is there any hell that's more or worse than that? And the Buddha's like, yeah, there sure is. And he describes somebody who doesn't understand the Four Noble Truths. That's what this part here is where he says, this is discontentedness, the cause of discontentedness, the elimination of discontentedness, and the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. If somebody doesn't understand the Four Noble Truths, then they're just going to continue to reside in that hell of experiencing discontentedness over and over and over again. So there's going to be sadness, anger, frustration, or the Buddha describes it here, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, despair, right? All these painful feelings. Because if you don't understand the Four Noble Truths and you haven't broken through to understand what the cause of discontentedness is, then you can't eliminate it. So therefore, if you can't eliminate it through the path that leads to enlightenment through this eightfold path, then there's gonna continue to be decisions or volitional formations that lead to continuous rebirth over and over and over again, which means if there's birth, there's going to be sickness, aging, and death over and over and over again. And this is what we've been experiencing for countless times and now in this human realm you have the opportunity to understand these four noble truths and make an end to discontentedness and therefore the buddha describes that you won't have this being you know burnt by birth or burnt by aging burnt by death because it's you know somewhat miserable to continue to exist in this cycle of rebirth this is where sometimes people look at the buddha's teachings and think like wow it's pretty pessimistic to think of life in that way but the outlook of a person who's enlightened isn't pessimistic but you have to kind of understand that misery and that pessimism at least in terms of yeah it's not fun to wake up and feel aches and pains and sorrow and sadness and grief and displeasure and despair that's not enjoyable at all that's really miserable but as you train the mind and you transform it to this enlightened mind and you actually experience enlightenment, it's kind of like, ah, take a nice fresh breath. Wow, this is what life's supposed to be like. No discontentedness whatsoever. I can, I can do this. This feels great. But all of that discontentedness and that unenlightened state man it's so horrible every time somebody dies around you to feel that pain or anytime you have a relationship that breaks up any kind of significant relationship it's real miserable or other things that happen in our life it can be really miserable in the unenlightened state and being able to see that misery can be motivation to help you move towards this enlightened mind where now it's peaceful calm serene content with joy and nothing shakes up the mind whatsoever that's why it's important to see the miserable side of life and use that cycle of rebirth as a motivator to get out of it so that you can ascend and evolve beyond it. So questions on this chapter?
3: Doesn't appear there are any questions.
1: Okay, so the four noble truths are just so important to learn and practice. Chapter 13.
4: Four qualities of a wholesome person. Monks, One who possesses four qualities can be understood to be a wholesome person. What for? Here monks, a wholesome person does not disclose the faults of others. Even when asked about them, how much less than when not asked. But when he is asked about them, then led on by questions, he speaks about the faults of others with gaps and omissions, not fully or in detail. It can be understood. This individual is a wholesome person. Number two, again, a wholesome person discloses the virtues of others, even when not asked about them, how much more than when asked, but when he is asked about them, then led on by questions, he speaks about the virtues of others without gaps and omissions fully and in detail. It can be understood this individual is a wholesome person. Number three, again, a wholesome person discloses his own faults, even when not asked about them, how much more than when asked, but when he is asked about them, then led on by questions, he speaks about his own faults without gaps and omissions fully and in detail. It can be understood. This individual is a wholesome person. Number four, again, a wholesome person does not disclose his own virtues even when asked about them, how much less than when not asked. But when he is asked about them, then led on by questions, he speaks about his own virtues with gaps and omissions, not fully or in detail it can be understood this individual is a wholesome person. One who possesses these four qualities can be understood as a wholesome person.
1: Okay, thank you, Nick. So here the Buddha is giving guidance for you of how to practice. He's not giving guidance of how to judge people because we shouldn't judge other people. That's only going to cause harm to our own mind. But he's wording it in this way to help you understand how to be a wholesome person. In this first two items, he's essentially talking about gossip, that a person, if they were to disclose the faults of others, even when not asked about them, this person is gossiping. And this means that you're not wholesome if you're gossiping about others and all their faults, because you have your own faults, too. You know, why would you share what faults of other people are? And then he talks about here about when asked about a person's faults and led on by questions, that you speak with the faults about others with gaps and omissions, not fully or in detail. What this relates to is if you've ever been in a situation where you've been asked to be a reference or you've been an employer and somebody's called you for a reference, here you are being asked questions, you know is this person a good student, or is this person a good employee, or what have you, and you need to give a certain reference. Well, if you just open up and say every last little wrong thing about this person that you see, the Buddha is saying, this isn't a wholesome way to conduct yourself. Instead, what I would suggest is that you tell this person who's asking for a reference some areas that this person needs to improve, and then also talk about positive things as well and always cast it in a positive light rather than degrading somebody. So that's what he's talking about here is being positive and uplifting, not, you know, gossiping about people. But even when people ask you about the faults of others, do that in a positive way that leads to this person's continuous growth. Because an enlightened being isn't interested in pushing others down and holding people down. Instead, they're looking at motivating, encouraging, being uplifting of all beings. So if you're practicing to be wholesome and to be enlightened, even when you're being asked about somebody and how they might be doing in life, then do that in a positive and encouraging way. And then the same thing here is that when somebody's asking you about wholesome things, right? Like even somebody doesn't ask you about somebody else but you explain things about others and you're being uplifting, you're being motivating, you're being encouraging, saying how this person is so great, oh, he's so kind, he's so friendly, he's so loving, or she's so kind, she's so friendly, she's so loving, and be willing to share that openly rather than hold back with that. So the first one is talking about more kind of negative things in terms of thoughts, where the second one is talking about virtues or positive things about somebody being willing to share that freely. And then the three and four are related to your own faults or your own virtues. The Buddha is saying a wholesome person would be willing to disclose their faults to others and that they would describe them fully and openly. But then when it comes to your own virtues, he's saying that a wholesome person would basically hold back. They wouldn't be boastful, right? And this is where you need to navigate this In things like a job interview, if you went for a job interview, you need to be able to speak about your virtues, but you would like to be able to do so in a non-boastful, non-arrogant, non-prideful way, and this will actually help you in your job interview, for example. Because if you went into a job interview and you were arrogant or prideful or boastful about your accomplishments, that's probably not going to go over too well. But if you found a nice middle way to explain your accomplishments and your successes in your career and did it without arrogance or pride or being boastful, this will actually really help you as you are interviewing for a certain job, for example. So that's what he's giving you guidance here is how you can practice to be wholesome. Questions on this chapter?
3: Uh, yes, I had a question um, surrounding your willing, willingness to share of one's faults versus the comfort um, to share one's fault. How would one become more comfortable with sharing their faults and mistakes as appropriate in the given situation?
1: Yeah, do just doing it regularly. You might start with just talking in the mirror to yourself. Talking to somebody that you trust, somebody that you know, you know, that you can really trust. They're not going to, you know, bust out laughing at you or mock you or joke you or things like this. Talk with in the mirror, talk with this one person or two people explaining those things. So then when you're in a situation where you need to describe your faults, you can describe those nowadays in today's society there really isn't too many settings where you need to describe your faults so to speak except for if you're talking with your teacher about these buddhist teachings and you're making your way to enlightenment that's the last person you want to tell all the wonderful uh, things that you're doing to your buddhist teacher you would like to tell your buddhist teacher all the things that you're challenged with all the struggles that you're having so that they can help you overcome them if you were hiding those things then you wouldn't be getting the most benefit out of your relationship with your teacher. So nowadays, there really isn't situations where you need to go around and openly talk about your thoughts. You know, this isn't something that's necessarily beneficial. But if you're in that situation and you needed to, then you could feel comfortable doing so.
3: Okay, we'll go to
6: Jan. Thank you, Manel. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, This is very timely for me. Uh, my supervisor at work um, asked me to have a a confidential phone call this week about someone else that we both work with and was asking me a lot of um, questions about problems that this individual is causing in our workplace. Um, So it was a comfortable enough conversation. Um, I tried to focus on the concrete what is happening and what do we need to try to change what would be better you know in, not in terms of the person but just in terms of how our workflow goes you know i tried to keep it very much on that level and i remember praising the person we were talking about a few times but <laughs> now reading especially um number 1 here it makes me a little bit I'm wondering if I handled this correctly or not. You know, my boss is asking me to disclose the faults of someone that I work with. Um, So (laughs) I, you know, I did engage in that conversation. I don't know how I would have refused it, but I I hope I did the right thing by trying to stay concrete about the tasks and the, the things that need to happen and not focus on the person great
1: (laughs) yeah that sounds very professional to me i mean the buddha is not saying here that we should not in any circumstance talk about somebody's faults. that's not what he's saying he's he's just saying you know rather than kind of blabbing and just you know willy-nilly open your mouth and blab and gossip about everything that is wrong he's saying okay be a little bit reserved you know kind of restrain the mind and talk professionally essentially if i was in that situation and a supervisor was asking me to describe something about another employee i would probably start out with talking about some of the wholesome things that i see with this person and the things that i think are really helpful with this person and professional then i would explain some of the major areas that could be improved and then i would probably go back to talking about some of the wholesome things so that you kind of bookend it with some wholesome things And some of the unwholesome things or some of the faults in the middle, and then describe it in a way that is uplifting, encouraging, and supportive of this person improving. That would be, I think, the most professional way. Because what you're trying to do here is you're trying to maintain your gamma to be clean and to be wholesome. Whereas if we go into conversations and we're just blabbing about all the faults about people, then because that's what we're putting out, then people get used to Hearing that from us, and that's what we experience in life too. People do the same thing to us. Whereas if we're encouraging, supportive, motivating, and uplifting, even when we're needing to talk about somebody's faults, then our supervisor or our coworkers, or if we're on a committee of people, for example, and we need to be talking about something like this, by being supportive, encouraging, motivating, and uplifting, People can see there that, yeah, this person is talking about some thoughts of something, but at the same time, there's this positive vibe to the feedback that is meant with the intention of improving the situation. And then this helps us to maintain our wholesome karma, that people understand that, yeah, you know, David's in this position of being on this committee and, He's talking now to 10 different people in this committee, but he's talking about this situation or this person in a very wholesome way as a way for us to improve rather than degrading or diminishing or trying to knock people down. This is what we see a lot in certain societies where people are trying to knock each other down as a way to make themselves feel better and rise up to the top. That's not the way to actually rise up to the top because as you push this person down in order to rise up to the top, then it's only a matter of time before someone pushes you down. The way that we actually all become better is we all get uplifted with each other, is that we can all be uplifting to each other. And as a team or as a committee or as a group of people, we can all be supportive and encouraging and uplift each other, encouraging, motivating, supportive, and uplifting. So this is what the Buddha is talking about here is how to maintain your wholesome karma when you're in a situation where you need to talk about somebody's faults.
6: Thank you, teacher. That's, uh, that's very helpful. I think the conversation went the way you're suggesting. So that makes me feel better.
1: Good.
3: We'll go to Nick next.
4: Thank you. Manel. Teacher David, during daily practice, um, we, Would we be safe to say or to think of this to recall it quickly to sum it up as: don't gossip about others, share the positive of others, and when it's uh, and when it's talking about you, uh, be honest about your own faults and and humble about your virtues. Just a quick summary.
1: Yeah, that'd be a great way to summarize it. And if you're all, doing all of those things with those five factors of well-spoken speech that the Buddha teaches. Which is speak at the right time, what you say is true, speak gently, speak beneficially, and with a mind of loving kindness. If you're doing what you just described as a summary with those five factors of well spoken speech, then you're keeping your gamma clean and you can rest assured that there's no unwholesomeness that you're generating that's going to end up coming back to you.
3: Doesn't appear there are any other questions.
1: All right, so we'll move on to the next chapter, which is actually just the opposite of the one that we just read.
5: Okay, we'll go to Miranda. Four qualities of an unwholesome person. Monks, one who possesses four qualities can be understood to be an unwholesome person. What for? Here, monks, an unwholesome person discloses the faults of others, even when not asked about them, how much more than when asked. But when he is asked about them, led on by questions, He speaks about the faults of others without gaps or omissions fully and in detail. It can be understood this individual is an unwholesome person. Again, an unwholesome person does not disclose the virtues of others even when asked about them, how much less than when not asked. But when he is asked about them, then led on by questions, he speaks about the virtues of others with gaps and omissions not fully or in detail. It can be understood this individual is an unwholesome person. Again, an unwholesome person does not disclose his own faults even when asked about them, how much less than when not asked. But when he is asked about them, led on by questions, he speaks about his own faults with gaps and omissions, not fully or in detail. It can be understood this individual is an unwholesome person. Again, an unwholesome person discloses his own virtues, even when not asked about them, how much more than when asked. But when he is asked about them, then, led on by questions, he speaks about his own virtues without gaps and omissions, fully and in detail. It can be understood this individual is an unwholesome person. One who possesses these four qualities can be understood to be an unwholesome person.
1: All right. Thanks, Miranda. As I mentioned, this is exactly the opposite of the previous chapter. So I'll just open up to see if there's any questions on this one.
3: Doesn't look like there are any questions.
1: All right. We'll move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 15.
3: Okay, we'll go to Nick.
1: Thank you, all. With an
4: unaffected mind, residing compassionate. Student, if anyone speaks critical in your presence, You should abandon any desires and any thoughts based on the household life and herein you should train thus my mind will be unaffected and i shall speak no evil words i shall reside compassionate for his welfare with a mind of loving kindness without inner hate this is how you should train student if anyone should give you a blow with his hand with a clod with a stick or with a knife. You should abandon any desires and any thoughts based on the household life. And herein you should train thus. My mind will be unaffected, and I shall speak no evil words. I shall reside compassionate for his welfare with a mind of loving kindness, without inner hate. That is how you should train, student.
1: Okay. So here, the Buddha is talking about being unaffected by what other people do and just remain compassionate or reside compassionate. Compassion is a concern for the misfortune of others. And this is a quality of mind that needs to be cultivated in order to reach to enlightenment. There's these four Brahma Viharas: loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, and compassion is an important one, because this is where you develop concern for the misfortune of others, where you eliminate holding on and wanting the world to be a certain way, but you also don't have indifference, where you could care less what people experience in this life, but instead you have this concern for the misfortune of others. And going back to Manal's question about merits or meritorious deeds, this is where oftentimes people gather the energy and the inspiration to practice generosity in terms of creating merit is out of this concern for the misfortune of others. Because the more that your mind becomes liberated, your mind becomes more peaceful, calm, serene and content with joy. And you know, it's these teachings that led you to that. Then people who experience more and more liberation of mind have a natural tendency to practice generosity in order to share these teachings into the world out of compassion for other beings. So here the Buddha is sharing with this ordained practitioner how to not have thoughts based on household life or desires based on household life. It's important to understand what the Buddha is describing here is that it's not that there's anything wrong with household life, but there was these two different lifestyles That existed during the lifetime of the Buddha, which also exists now, which is this ordained lifestyle. And then there's this household practitioner lifestyle, where ordained practitioners were really super dedicated to attaining enlightenment to the point where they were willing to walk away from the household life in order to fully become engrossed into learning and practicing the teachings of the Buddha. The Buddha essentially became like an adopted father to all these individuals who were following him around and learning his teachings because during the lifetime of the Buddha over 2,500 years ago, there weren't these standard educational systems that we have today where we learn all kinds of things going to school and then we might take on a teacher to learn Buddhist teachings at some point. But instead, when these people left their household life, Ordained to become ordained with the Buddha, he essentially taught them everything from beginning to end. Of course, they already knew how to eat and urinate and defecate and take showers and things like this. But here, these males and females were coming out of the household life in order to learn this path to enlightenment. So, what he's really talking about here is the way that I say, you know if you were going to do this before you were on the path to enlightenment you might have done it this way but now that you're on the path to enlightenment you might think about doing it in this way that's what he's really talking about here is that someone who's ordained with the buddha who was once living the household life unaware of these teachings they would have certain desires and certain thoughts based on the household life based of being off the path to enlightenment They would have certain reactions in certain situations and now the Buddha is teaching his ordained practitioners to more respond to situations rather than react. So here he's saying, you know, my mind will be unaffected and I shall speak no evil words. I shall remain compassionate for his welfare with a mind of loving kindness without inner hate. That is how you should train. So he's teaching this path to enlightenment and helping people to see that if you are confronted with certain things that people are trying to convince you to do or to not do and they're trying to force their craving and desires on you or they're being evil or they're doing hateful things, the Buddha is saying don't have hate back. That's not the appropriate way to handle something. And then likewise here on this second part, He's saying if somebody should come at you and essentially physically abuse you, he's saying, you know, don't go at this the way that you would if you were in the household life. Instead, remain unaffected. Don't speak any evil words. Remain compassionate for their welfare. Because as soon as you allow evil words to come into your speech, as soon as you allow hate to come into your mind... This is going to permeate in the mind and create more and more difficulties for you. So it's possible to be in situations where people are being very hateful and vindictive and jealous and resentful towards you, but you feel nothing but compassion, concern for their misfortune, right? You feel nothing but loving kindness, this genuine interest in seeing them be well, and you have no evil words and there's no inner hate whatsoever. And this requires training of the mind, where in the past, what you might have experienced is that when someone has hate for you, you hate them right back. Or if someone has evil words towards you, you have evil words right back. But this is what you're trying to rewire in the mind. You're trying to circumvent all of this, that when someone is hateful towards you, You don't feel hate towards them. You have loving kindness and compassion towards them. When someone has evil words towards you, you don't have any evil words for them. This is how you extinguish your unwholesome kama. Whereas if you continue to have hate, you continue to have evil words, this is only going to produce more and more unwholesome kama for you that you're going to have to deal with. Questions on this chapter? It's
3: like Miranda has her hand raised. Yes,
5: sir. Do you think that it would be a good practice to keep that saying in mind, my mind will be unaffected or the mind will be unaffected in day-to-day life to remind us to cut off unwholesome thoughts and remain residing compassionate towards others?
1: Absolutely. If you're in a situation where maybe you are in a relationship where someone else is being hateful or vindictive or having evil words, you have options there. You know, it's your choice. You could ignore it completely, you know, get up and walk out of the room or leave the place where you're at, what have you. You don't need to stay in that situation. But in a situation where maybe maybe you do need to stay there for a certain period of time, let's just say you're in a an office of your boss or something and Uh, You know that if you got up and left, you would lose your job. And that's not something that you're able to do. Maybe what you do in that situation is, yeah, you can repeat that in your mind. Remain unaffected. Remain unaffected. Remain unaffected. Have compassion for this person. Compassion. Because when someone's being hateful and vindictive and all these evil words are spewing out of their, their mind and out of their mouth... This is their craving, their anger, and their ignorance. And there you can see the the way that the Buddha taught that when you see the teachings, you see me, that when you see this person's craving arising and their anger arising, their ignorance or unknowing of true reality, that they don't realize by yelling at you as their boss and you're the employee, they're not going to have a dedicated employee at the end of this conversation who's really eager to go out there and do a really good job for them or if you're in a situation where it's two life partners and your life partner is doing hateful things to you you're not going to end that conversation with wow I'm just so feel so great to be in this relationship with this person when we experience these situations where people are venting anger and hostility towards us You know we can make decisions there whether this is a relationship that we would like to continue or whether we feel like we need to move on and and make ways to do that and it doesn't have to necessarily be a sudden thing we can gradually move away from a certain relationship but ensuring that your mind remains unaffected will allow you to remain calm so that you can have mindfulness or awareness of mind have concentration And then you can have wisdom to make wise decisions about what should I do next? Now that I see this situation is occurring, what can I do next? What would be the wise decisions here? Where oftentimes what your own craving, anger, and ignorance wants to do is it wants to react with hostility or aggression. That would be the wrong thing to do because it's only going to create harm for you. Whereas if you understand what's going on, it's that person's craving, anger, and ignorance. You can reside compassionate and having loving kindness for them. Now you can remain unaffected and then make wise decisions about what you feel like is best for you to do next. Thank you, sir. You're welcome.
3: We'll go to Nick. Thank you,
4: Manol. So teacher David, the takeaway for us as householders, would it be to Not react how we would have in the past when we were off the path. Instead, respond with this guidance now that we are on the path.
1: Yes. And always keep in mind that as long as there's craving, anger, and ignorance in the mind, the mind's going to have a tendency to want to do things that it did before. Because that's the well-beaten path. That's what the mind knows is that someone's angry with me or i'm going to be angry back here's hostility here's aggression because that's what we're used to that's a well-beaten path but what you're trying to do on this path to enlightenment is you're trying to rewire the mind where it's a real struggle it's real difficult to make this new path it's not natural for you because what's natural for you is to be aggressive and hostile back But what you've got to learn to do is when someone is being this way with you is to not be that way with them. Because as long as you allow it to keep happening out of your own mind, then you're just going to be creating harm for yourself. I talk about this with the rubber ball, that if somebody picks up a rubber ball and they throw it in the room and it bounces around and bounces around and bounces around, If you pick up the rubber ball and you throw it again, then this rubber ball just keeps bouncing around and bouncing around and it might hit you and clobber you in the head. Whereas if somebody picks up a rubber ball and they throw the rubber ball and you just look at it and you don't do anything about it and then it loses its energy and it just kind of rolls over into the corner and it's just sitting there, you haven't done anything. You haven't picked up that rubber ball and you haven't done anything with it. And now all the focus is on that person. Whereas if that person's creating problems in the world and you create problems right back, now both of you guys are in the wrong, so to speak. Whereas if somebody else is creating issues or creating harm in the world and you do nothing at all, now the focus is on that person and they start to understand that they're the ones who need to improve their conduct. So if you remain unaffected and just having loving kindness and compassion for this person, that's what will protect your mind and you can rewire the mind to no longer react but instead respond and a response might be just to ignore it or just to walk out of the room or something like that that can be a response a response doesn't necessarily mean saying something back in all situations when there's pride and there's ego and there's this arrogance when somebody says something hateful to you that ego wants to rear up and say something hateful back, or even say something wise or sarcastic or something like that. But oftentimes when ego rises up from somebody else and they're being hateful, you can't speak to a person's ego. Oftentimes the best thing to do is just ignore it or just end the conversation and move on. So when I say respond, remember that a response can be just to ignore it or even just walk away.
4: Thank you, teacher David, and as in the second half of the paragraph, if an encounter with someone came to blows, uh, what is the guidance on self-defense? And uh, I know the the military and first responders refer to this as use of force.
1: Yeah, so I explain it here. Um, I explain it in volume one. I also explain it here as well. But let me just help you to understand it, for those of you guys that haven't read yet, is that there's a whole lot of things that you can do through your intentions, your speech and your actions to be sure that you're never in a situation where somebody is attacking you, right? Like through your way that you practice, the way your intentions, your speech and your actions, you can ensure that you're not in situations where you're outside at 2 a.m. in the morning when a whole bunch of people are using drugs and alcohol, and you're on the street, and there's a likelihood for somebody to attack you, for example. You can be sure that you yourself aren't taking drugs and alcohol and putting yourself in a situation like that. You can be sure that you know by not having arrogance or ego or being boastful, you can be sure you're not in a situation where you're being attacked. Things like this. The Buddha even talked about not being outside, you know, in the darkness at, at nighttime. How essentially, you know, that it's best to do your activity in the light when the daylight hours. Not that you should be scared or fearful about being outside at night, but essentially, the world becomes a different place at you know midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., and enlightened beings typically are not outside at that time because they just know that things that are going on at that time aren't necessarily the most wholesome. So there's a lot of decisions that we can make before we ever find ourselves in a situation like this. And that would be ideal that if you learn all that wisdom and you make a lot of decisions to ensure you're not in that situation. But let's just say you're in a situation where you're in your home. It's 2 a.m. and boom, a window gets crashed and someone's coming through your window to attack you and your family. The Buddha is not saying here that you should not defend the physical body or you should not defend your family because someone who's breaking into a window at 2 a.m. in the morning they're not coming to deliver flowers and chocolate right they're coming there for a reason to harm you or to steal from you or something like this my advice would be is if you and your family can get out just get out don't even confront the person there's no reason to Stand up and fight for some possessions that are in your home. If you can just run out, call the police, you're safe at a neighbor's house or what have you, that's the best situation that you're never confronted with this person who has extreme craving, anger, and ignorance to be breaking into your home at 2 a.m. in the morning. But if you're in a situation where you're backed into a corner and you have no other option but to do something to protect this physical body or... Your family then you can do that but I would suggest doing it with the least amount of harm that if you don't have to kill this person then don't kill them right because as soon as you go to that point that's where things can be looked at in a way that could be potentially harmful for you so if it's possible for you to protect this physical body and the people around you without inflicting grave harm like death That would be ideal, but it's not always possible. So if somebody had a gun and a knife and you happen to have something to defend this physical body and it's either you or them, well, it's their Kama that they're breaking into someone's house at 2 a.m. in the morning with a gun, with a knife, and they end up getting shot in that situation and killed. That's their Kama. That's their Kama of they performed this unwholesome conduct. And now they've gotten the results of that. And now you can feel secure that, you know, you didn't go looking for this fight. This came to you and you were just doing what you needed to do in order to protect this physical body and, and the people that were around you. So that's what I would share in terms of defense. You can see that here in this chapter. And I also have this in volume one as well, where I explain it perhaps in more detail. But if there's no ego that you have in terms of, you know, I've got to protect myself, I've got to protect my possessions, How dare this person break into my house, then you should feel completely comfortable with just getting out and okay, whatever happens happens. Person steals my TV, steal my food, steal my furniture, go for it. At least this body, at least my family, we're protected, we're safe. We can replace all of that stuff if we need to. And then know that this person is going to experience their kama, the results of their decisions of having stolen things, they'll experience the results of that. So that would be my advice in situation described here in the second part of this chapter.
4: Um, That's the difference, Uh, watching the ego, making sure that's not there. And uh, just to be clear, Teacher David, um, using minimal amount of force, minimal use of force, that would be residing compassionate.
1: Exactly. So when we look at the first precept using the words of the Buddha, you can see that the Buddha doesn't say preserve all life at all costs. That's oftentimes the way people think of this precept because oftentimes the rudimentary translation of the first precept is no killing. But the Buddha didn't say no killing. He said, you know, abandon the taking of life with stick or sword, you know, reside compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. And that's what it is, is having compassion, that concern for the misfortune of others. So if this being breaks into my house at 2 a.m. knocking the windows out, hey, this person must have extreme craving and they must have a whole bunch of ignorance or unknowing of true reality to do this if they need food, if they need my TV, if they need these other things, hey, have it. You can take it. Go for it. You know, my family and me, we're going to be over here being safe. We have compassion for your well-being. Oh, you would like to come attack us and kill us and harm us? Okay, we're going to remain compassionate for you. We're going to remain compassionate for your welfare, but we're not going to allow you to hurt us. We're going to probably have to hurt you back to ensure that you don't hurt us. And that's still residing compassionate for the welfare of all living beings. The Buddha doesn't say preserve all life at all costs, but instead he says reside compassionate for the welfare of all living beings. And that would be a way to reside compassionate for all living beings.
3: Uh, Teacher David, I have a quick question. Uh, When the mind is um, training to remain uh, unaffected, if someone is speaking harshly, speaking negatively, um, aggressively towards you. um, Would it also be um, considered that by you um, residing in compassion that you're assisting the other person to extinguish their fire?
1: Yes, because if somebody else is being hostile and aggressive to you and you don't react and you are just ignore it or you're just quiet, they can only be hostile and aggressive for so long and they see nothing's coming back they can slowly start to see they're the ones who are causing the problem you're unaffected by it so it can actually help them yes extinguish their fire it can help them see that they are the problem whereas if they're harsh and aggressive with you and you're harsh and aggressive back you guys are just like two cats fighting in the street and who can tell which cat was wrong and which cat was right Whereas if there's one cat that's fighting, 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 and the other one's just trying to kind of move on and get away, everybody can clearly see who's in the wrong, so to speak. So yes, that can really help somebody to extinguish their own fire, their own unwholesome karma. And the way that you can reside unaffected is by eliminating your own craving, desire, attachment. If we have a certain craving or a certain desire where we're craving for people to permanently talk to us in a certain way, where when somebody talks to us hostile and aggressive, if you have a craving for permanence, for everyone to talk to you, polite, kind, friendly, and respectful, when this person speaks to you aggressive and hostile, you're going to be angry because you're craving is kicking in and now your anger and your ignorance is going to arise whereas if you understand impermanence and you understand that it's impossible for you to go through this life with everybody speaking to you polite kind friendly and respectful it's impossible for that to occur then when this person speaks to you hostile and aggressive you just see it for what it is it's just impermanence it's their own craving anger and ignorance And all you can do in that situation is reside unaffected, have loving kindness and compassion for this being, and that will allow you to reside unaffected. And then more and more, this person can see that it's actually their mind. It's them that's actually the problem. You haven't done anything at all.
3: Thank you. You're welcome. There are no more questions for this chapter.
1: All right. Let's move on to chapter 16.
3: Monks, there are these five courses of speech that are that others may use when they address you one their speech may be timely or untimely two true or untru- untrue three gentle or harsh four connected with benefit or unbeneficial five spoken with a mind of loving kindness or with inner hate herein monks, you should train thus our minds will remain unaffected and we shall speak no evil words We shall reside compassionate for their welfare, with the mind of loving-kindness, without inner hate. We shall reside enveloping that person with a mind filled with loving-kindness. And starting with him, we shall reside enveloping the all-encompassing world, with a mind filled with loving-kindness, abundant, joyful, immeasurable, without hostility, and without ill-will. That is how you should train monks. Monks, suppose the man came with crimson, turmeric, indigo, or carmine and said, I shall draw pictures and make pictures appear in empty space. What do you think, monks? Could that man draw pictures and make pictures appear in empty space? No, venerable, sir. Why is that? Because empty space is formless and invisible. He cannot possibly draw pictures there or make pictures appear there. Eventually, the man would reap only tiredness and disappointment. So two monks, there are these five courses of speech that others may use when they address you. Here in monks, you should train thus. Our minds will will remain unaffected and we shall speak no evil words. We shall reside compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness without inner hate. We shall reside enveloping them with a mind filled with loving kindness. And starting with them, we shall reside enveloping the all encompassing world with a mind filled with loving kindness abundant joyful immeasurable without hostility and without without ill will that is how you should train monks. the Buddha also spoke several other similes a simile of a man who came with a hoe and a basket and said i shall make this great earth to be without earth a simile of a man with a blazing grass torch and said i shall heat up the and burn away the river ganges with this blazing grass torch eventually that man would reap only tiredness and disappointment Monks, even if criminals were to sever you savagely limb by limb with a two-handed saw, he who gave rise to a mind of hate towards them would not be practicing my teachings. Herein, monks, you should train thus. Our minds will remain unaffected, and we shall speak no evil words. We shall reside compassionate for their welfare, with a mind of loving kindness, without inner hate. We shall reside enveloping them with a mind filled with loving kindness and start with them. We shall reside enveloping the all encompassing world with a mind filled with loving kindness, abundant, joyful, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. That is how you should train monks. Monks, if you keep this advice on the simile of the Saw constantly in mind, do you see any course of speech insignificant or significant that could not endure, that you could not endure? No, Venerable Sir, therefore, monks, you should keep this advice on the simile of the saw constantly in mind. That will lead to your welfare and peacefulness for a long time.
1: All right. Thank you, Manal. So this is really, you know, picking up where the previous chapter kind of left off. The previous chapter was just kind of more of a general teaching, where this one the Buddha is going into much more detail about how you can train the mind to reside unaffected. And he's explaining here that, you know, we're going to experience... People who are using these five factors of well-spoken speech, which the five factors of well-spoken speech are speaking at the right time, what we say is true, gentle, beneficial, and with a mind of loving kindness. If we speak that way, we're not causing harm to others, so therefore harm won't come to us. But just because we're training our mind to speak that way doesn't mean that other people are going to speak that way with us because other people aren't necessarily on this path and they're not training their mind in the same way. So people are going to speak untimely. People are going to speak untruths. People are going to speak harsh, unbeneficially, and with a mind of inner hate. And when that is occurring, the Buddha is saying, ensure that your mind is unaffected. Remain unaffected and speak no evil words. Because the moment you speak evil words is the moment you're creating an awesome kama. Because when you have intention, speech, and actions that are not using the right intention, right speech, and right action as part of the Eightfold Path, as soon as you put out the evil words, that's causing harm in the world. So, therefore, it's going to come back and harm you at some point. So, ensuring that even when people aren't speaking to you in the way that you might be speaking to them, maybe they aren't. Training their mind the way that you are. Have compassion for them. That's what the Buddha is explaining here. Not having inner hate. He even describes here a person. I'll just skip down here and then we can come back up if we need to. He's talking down here about if criminals were to sever you savagely from limb by limb with a two-handed saw, he who give rise to a mind of hate towards them would not be practicing my teachings. So he's saying even in a situation where somebody's sawing you limb by limb by limb, don't allow the mind to have hate in that situation, have compassion for them. So back to what Nick was asking a question about, about defending the physical body, you can defend against an attack without having hate. If you allowed hate to arise in the mind while you're defending, That is where the mind can go beyond just defending yourself and maybe do something more harmful, which then ultimately comes back. So you can actually defend without having hate that you can still reside compassionate for this being. The Buddha gives an analogy here where he's talking about, you know, could somebody draw pictures when there's an empty space? could they make a picture appear with an empty space and of course the answer is no they can't and what the buddha is essentially explaining here is that if that if somebody's being hateful and vindictive and aggressive with you but yet there's nothing here to latch onto it then it just goes out into empty space so just like colors can't draw a picture without a canvas you need to have a canvas before you can draw a picture with colors Don't give that person a canvas. If somebody's got inner hate and they're vindictive and they're resentful and they're speaking harsh and aggressive with you, don't give them a canvas that that stuff sticks. Instead, create an empty space where it just essentially goes by the wayside, like there's wind that just blows it away. That's the way to ensure that you don't allow this hateful speech to stick to you and allow it to affect your mind. Any questions on this chapter?
3: Yes, we'll go to Nick.
1: Thank you, Manol. Uh, Teacher David, I, I was wondering like
4: I was reading some of these similes, especially the ones in the parentheses, and uh, they they kind of they kind of made me chuckle a little bit. So I'm just wondering if the Buddha, you know, if was he serious all the time. I, I know it was twenty five hundred years ago or but when he when he was teaching, you know, I'm just curious. Um, you know you may not be able to answer but we can speculate um you know is he like uh was the way he taught like some great teachers can make you laugh at times you know i mean some of these um things like a simile of a man who came with a hoe and basket saying you know i can come to this great earth i'll sweep it all up you know it's it's ridiculous you know but uh <clears throat> i was just wondering your thoughts on that if, if he if he kind of threw in maybe a joke here and there
1: Yeah. My my thoughts here is that a Buddha is a, a normal human being. They've just ascended to enlightenment on their own. They dedicate the rest of their life to sharing their teachings and they leave the teachings in a condition that can be understood and practiced long after their death and countless people can attain enlightenment during their life and after death. So a Buddha is still going to tell jokes. This is the thing that, you know, oftentimes we see depictions of the Buddha sitting deep in meditation with his eyes closed. And people think that a Buddha is just constantly serious all the time and maybe even uptight, right? But, you know, nobody's going to want to follow that guy. If somebody walks around serious on edge and constantly uptight, nobody's going to be interested in learning from that person. So a Buddha tells jokes and the Buddha even Uh, has a teaching where he says, you know, even when he tells jokes, he doesn't tell a lie, right? He doesn't speak a falsehood, even when he tells jokes. So a Buddha is going to have a personality just like everyone else. And typically the best way to teach, particularly in an oral tradition, is to teach in extremes, where something is very graphic and extreme, Or perhaps very comical in an extreme, because then you can see how silly it is. Whereas if you just kind of talk to like kind of, you know, lackluster and just kind of like mediocre language, then the clarity of the teaching can't be seen as well. Where if you talk in graphic detail or you talk with kind of almost a comical approach then the clarity of the teachings can be seen more clearly and the path can be illuminated for people to understand what the path to enlightenment is. So if you found certain things comical, it's not that he's trying to necessarily, in my view, be comical with his teachings, but a person who's speaking in the oral tradition and teaching in the oral tradition is going to use these extremes in order to better illustrate their teachings and to be able to be seen more clearly by the people who are learning with them.
4: I understand, teacher. Thank you. That's what I was getting at, doing um, tactics like all great teachers would. Um, the paragraph under it, you know, I it makes me think, you know, where uh, the criminal or like savage you limb by limb it makes me think of, uh, you know, what happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago. Um, I grew up Catholic and I've seen Passion of the Christ and, you know, horrific and 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 just awful. But I'm wondering, is that what he did? And is that how he was able to do it? Because he was on the path and he knew these teachings and he knew to not have hate. You know, it, it makes me think.
1: Exactly. Because when Jesus is on the cross and he's being killed, and of course, there was a lot of lead up to that where he was being beaten and made to be a mockery of the town carrying this cross through the town when he was nailed to the cross and up there one of the things he said is he cried out to God you know forgive them for they don't know what they're doing essentially right like you know have compassion and not that he had to teach God these things but God already understood that that was going to happen but yes Jesus wasn't fully enlightened that's one of the reasons why we see some of the teachings that he shares are in conflict with what the Buddha shared. But there's some similarities there that you can see where when Jesus was being murdered, he still had compassion for the people who were murdering him. And that's when he cried out, you know, please forgive them for they don't know what they're they're doing. And that's essentially what the Buddha's teaching here as well. Thank you, teacher David. You're welcome
3: it doesn't appear are there are any other questions for this chapter
1: all right move on to chapter 17. this is a really interesting one talk about comical <laughs> <laughs>
5: uh,
6: reside with a mind of newly arrived bride i'm sorry manol i interrupted you i oh no, no you're, you're great thank you okay thank you reside with a mind of a newly arrived bride Months, when a bride is first brought into the home, whether at night or during the day, she first, at first she sets up a diligent sense of moral wrongdoing and moral concern toward her mother-in-law, her father-in-law, her husband, and even the slaves, workers, and servants. But after some time, as a result of living together and intimacy with them, she says to her mother-in-law, her father-in-law, and her husband, go away. What do you know? So, too, when some monks, when some monk here has gone forth from the household life into homelessness, whether by night or during the day, at first he sets up a diligent sense of moral wrongdoing and moral concern toward the male ordained practitioners, the female ordained practitioners, the male household practitioners, the female household practitioners, and even toward the monastery workers and novices. But after some time, as a result of living together and intimacy with them, he says even to his teacher and his preceptor, go away, what do you know? Therefore, monks, you should train yourself thus. We will reside with a mind like that of a newly arrived bride. It is in such a way that you should train yourselves.
1: All right. Thank you, Jan. So here, if you've ever had this situation where you've moved into a home that you didn't pay rent for or you didn't really have a tie to the situation and maybe you were a guest in somebody's home, you might have experienced for a week or two or three where you were kind of on what we call your P's and Q's, right? You were really ensuring that you were doing everything properly because you didn't want to ruffle any feathers in the situation because you've got this good situation where you know you're being brought into this home people are taking care of you you're not having to pay rent or food or what have you and you're being well taken care of but the buddha is saying you know after a period of time you kind of start to get complacent you start to get comfortable in that situation and you start not doing things as diligently as you did when you first kind of joined this home this is what a newly arrived bride does is that when they first arrive the Buddha is saying okay they're going to be kind of conducting themselves with good wholesome moral conduct but after a while of living together they're going to essentially maybe their ego comes up the arrogance comes up and they kind of you know reject the mother-in-law the father-in-law and maybe even the husband as well and the Buddha is relating this to ordained practitioners that, you know, when they first come in to be ordained and they're living at the temple, they kind of have this moral wrongdoing, this knowing right from wrong, and this moral concern and being concerned when they do do wrong things and they're looking to improve those things. And they have this interest to do well amongst the ordained practitioners, the household practitioners, and even the workers at the monastery and the novices. But some people at a certain point, after living closely with all these people, they kind of reject their own teacher, they reject their preceptor, which we can talk about what that is if you guys would like to talk about that. And basically, this arrogance and this ego comes up where now this newly ordained person thinks that they're better off than all the other people around them, where initially they were kind of doing the best they could do and showing respect and gratitude and appreciation to everybody. Now they've kind of slacked off of that. They've become complacent. And the Buddha is saying, you know, we shouldn't do that, that we should always remain like this newly arrived bride and always ensuring that we're doing wholesome things in all situations and never allowing the mind to become complacent. That's what he's talking about here. Any questions on this chapter?
3: Doesn't appear there are any questions for this chapter
1: all right so we'll go on to the next chapter chapter 18.
3: five factors of well-spoken speech monks possessing five factors speech is well spoken not badly spoken it is blameless and beyond reproach disapproval by the wise what five it is spoken at the proper time what is said is true it is spoken gently what is said is beneficial It is spoken with a mind of loving kindness. Possessing these five factors, speech is well spoken, not badly spoken, and it is blameless and beyond reproach, disapproval by the wise.
1: All right. Thank you, Manal. This chapter here is really helping to expand upon right speech as part of the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path provides some very basic guidance about our speech in terms of eliminating gossip and frivolous speech and idle chatter. Uh, not telling lies and things like this but that alone wouldn't actually get you to enlightenment you would need to actually be practicing these five factors of well-spoken speech to truly get to enlightenment In these five factors of well-spoken speech, the mind needs to gradually move up towards them where you're consistently on an ongoing basis in all conversations and all relationships that you're speaking in this way because this will ensure you're not causing harm to others. So therefore, harm won't come to you. And you'll realize that by speaking this way, your personal and professional relationships will blossom. I went into details of each one of these five factors in this chapter, where I explain you know, what is proper time, what is spoken gently, beneficially, the mind of loving kindness, and so forth. So what I'll do is I'll just open up to any questions that you guys have related to what you've read as part of this, and if you haven't read this yet, be sure to read through this so that you can understand what each individual one of these factors are, because if a conversation goes bad that you're in, you can look back on these five factors and see where you and or the other person weren't practicing one or more of these five factors. And conversely, if conversations go really well for you in your personal and professional life, you can reflect on that, and you can see how you and the other person were practicing all these five factors. This is really helpful for you to see the truth that the Buddha really nailed all of these teachings that rather than just believe what he's saying here, is to really reflect on past conversations or current conversations that you're involved in and see how when they turn out unwholesome, you're not practicing all of these factors. Or when they do turn out well, you are practicing all of these factors. And this will more firmly confirm and root in the mind that you need to be practicing each one of these every single time. And where you see that you're consistently not practicing one of these particular factors, You might decide that for the next week or two or three, you're just going to hone in on that one factor, like speaking at the proper time. If you know that you're a person that tends to interrupt others in continuous conversations throughout your day, and you know that that's a problem, then for the next several weeks or months, you might just hone in on that and just really focus on that really closely to ensure that you're nailing that every single time. Or there's other aspects of speaking at a proper time, which involves your own mind and the mind of the other person. So you might need to focus on that one or one of these other ones. And then slowly but surely, once you get the first one ironed out and nailed down really well, then you might move on to the second factor and really work on that one. And that might be a way that you can kind of take little smaller bites, digest this, and build up your practice layer by layer to eventually over time that you're practicing all five factors at all times. Questions on this chapter?
3: Uh, we to Miranda. Yes,
5: sir. I was wondering what would be the practice for times when the mind is discontent, but speaking has to be done at that time, like if there's an upset customer that you're dealing with at a job or if there's been an accident, police are called and they want you to talk to them. What should a practitioner do at those times?
1: The more that you can remain unaffected, the better. But if those situations like you're talking about where your own craving is arising in a situation where a customer is talking to you and you feel that there's a problem there in the mind, if you can't step away and maybe let another employee talk for you or talk, and handle the situation and you have to talk then you need to try to do that with as much of these five factors of well-spoken speech as possible it's better to be quietly frustrated than overtly angry whenever we're overtly angry with our intention speech and actions it's going to cause harm in the world and harm is going to come back to us there's a situation that's in the news in america right now related to this where if an individual is just quietly frustrated, that's better than being overtly angry. So if your mind is discontent and you have to deal with the situation, try to do that as best as you can with all the wisdom that you can. But just know that your mind being shaken up, it's going to taint what you're trying to accomplish. So if possible, only speak at the proper time when your mind is not discontent, but where you find that your mind is discontent, that's where you need to even really be more patient. You need to really bring in the equanimity, being calm and composed, you know, really doing your best to squash any kind of discontentedness that's arising. Thank you, sir. You're welcome.
3: There are no other questions, Deja David, for this chapter.
1: All right. We'll move on to chapter 19.
3: We'll go to Donnie.
7: Seeing one another in future lives. Monks, if both husband and wife aspire to see one another not only in this present life, but also in future lives, they should have the same confidence, the same virtuous behavior, the same generosity, and the same wisdom. Then they will see one another not only in this present life, but also in future lives. Both husband and wife are enriched with confidence, charitable, and mentally disciplined, living their lives righteously, addressing each other with pleasant words. Then, many benefits accumulate to them, and they reside at ease. Their enemies are saddened when both of them are the same in virtue or moral conduct. Having practiced the teachings here, the same in virtuous behavior and observances, delighting after that, in the heavenly world, they rejoice, enjoying sensual pleasures.
1: All right, thank you, Dani. So here, the Buddha is talking about, you know, husband and wife, or husband, husband, wife, wife, two life partners that are together, living together, and aspiring to see each other in a future life. This shouldn't be the goal of any practitioner who's on the path to enlightenment. But the Buddha is just explaining that, okay, if this is what you're interested in, this is how to actually acquire that. This is how to attain that. And he's talking about having confidence, virtuous behavior, generosity, and wisdom. And these are four important qualities in order to cultivate, in order to get to enlightenment. And also the Buddha is explaining here that this is what leads to the heavenly realm as well and two partners that are living together conducting themselves in this way would make their enemies angry right or saddened is what he uses here is because if you have enemies coming at a at a couple and they're looking to separate you and, and split you apart but yet you guys are joined in terms of your confidence which confidence is confidence in the buddha the teachings and the community. Virtuous behavior is this moral conduct of practicing right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Generosity is practicing giving and sharing, not being selfish. And then wisdom is the wisdom of the Buddhist teachings. And the Buddha is saying if you practice in this way as part of your relationship, then your enemies would be saddened because you guys are so much joined together in terms of the way you conduct yourself in life. And the Buddha is saying that this will lead to A better rebirth in terms of being reborn into a heavenly realm, the heavenly world. And then there he's saying, okay, these beings essentially enjoy sensual pleasures because in the heavenly realm, those beings only experience pleasant feelings. They don't experience painful feelings and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Again, I'll just share that this shouldn't be the goal of anybody who's interested to attain enlightenment, but the Buddha is explaining, okay, you know, short of enlightenment. This is what you can experience. Questions on this chapter?
3: Yes, Teacher David, so this chapter is a little bit um, slightly confusing for me because you know, having a partner in life, uh, being married in this life, um, you know, and our goal um, in following the teaching um, and attaining enlightenment in this life, um, you know, this, this chapter almost is speaking towards perhaps something that was more prevalent in the time of Gautama Buddha, where where perhaps there may have been an emphasis on um, married um, household practitioners to uh, work to- together towards enlightenment, and perhaps seeing something unfold um, together, um, you know, once once they live out the current lives, so. Um, you know, I, I appreciate your um, your kind of, you know, explanation below, but um, just a curiosity, uh, you know, where this may have kind of come about where he's speaking towards married couples, you know, uh, following the path together and um, potentially having something in the heavenly realm. It's just a little bit, you know, of a curious um, chapter for me.
2: Yeah,
1: it's always important to not look at the Buddhist teachings in isolation. Sometimes if somebody reads a chapter like this, if you look at it in isolation, you would think like, oh, okay, so that's the goal of to get married, to live together in a certain way, reborn in a heavenly realm and live together there, too. But this is not the goal of the Buddhist teachings. So if somebody looked at this in isolation, they might come away with that thought But also it's important to understand that during the lifetime of the Buddha, it was a lot less common for a household practitioner to attain enlightenment at that time. There were surely people who attained enlightenment during the lifetime of the Buddha as a household practitioner. But household practitioners were so involved with just sustaining their life. I mean, nowadays we have clothing systems and educational systems and food systems and all these different things that have been created that us household practitioners have a lot more time in our life than we did 2,500 years ago. So one of the things that household practitioners really aspired for during the lifetime of the Buddha is to at least get to the point where they could experience a heavenly rebirth and then attain enlightenment in the heavenly realm. They weren't necessarily always set on attaining enlightenment as part of their household life. So the Buddha would share these teachings about how to get to enlightenment, and that was what his path was all about, is guiding people to enlightenment. But should somebody fall short of that, he's also sharing teachings of what would happen if somebody falls short of that. So that's where it's important to understand that when you see a teaching like this, he's sharing what would happen if you fall short of attaining enlightenment, and that's what this is sharing. Okay, understood.
3: Thank Mm
5: -hmm.
1: you. You're welcome
3: you are no other questions for this chapter.
1: All right, so now we go to the very last chapter for today's class. that be Donnie.
7: Seven kinds of wives. Then in the morning, the perfectly enlightened one dressed, took his bowl and robe, and went to the residence of the householder, Anantapidika, where he sat down on the seat that was packed for him. Now on that occasion, people in Anantapidika's residence were making an uproar and a disturbance. Then the householder, Ananapidika, approached a perfectly enlightened one, paid homage, respect to him, and sat down to one side. The perfectly enlightened one then said to him, householder, why are people in your residence making such an uproar and a disturbance? One would think this was fishermen at the hull of fish. This, from the river, sir, my daughter-in-law sujata is rich and has been brought here from a rich family she doesn't obey her father-in-law her mother-in-law or her husband she doesn't even honor respect appreciate and venerate the perfectly enlightened one then the perfectly enlightened one addressed sujata come here sujata yes vulnerable sir she replied she went to the perfectly enlightened one paid homage respect to him and sat down on one side, the perfectly enlightened one then said to her, Sujata, a man might have seen seven kinds of wives. What seven? One like a killer, one like a thief, one like a tyrant, one like a mother, one like a sister, one like a friend, and one like a helper. A man might have these seven kinds of wives. Which one are you? Vulnerable sir, I do not understand in detail the meaning of this sentence that the Perfectly Enlightened One has spoken in brief. Please let the Perfectly Enlightened One teach me the teachings in such a way that I might understand in detail the meaning of the sentence spoken in brief. Then listen and attend closely each jata. I will speak. Yes, on of the research replied. The Perfectly Enlightened One said this. One, with hateful mind, lacking of compassion lusting for others despising her husband she seeks to kill the one who brought her with wealth a wife like that is called a wife and a killer 2 when a woman's husband acquires wealth by hard labour at a craft trade or farming she tries to steal it even if he earns but little a wife like this is called a wife and a thief 3 the lazy glutton, unwilling to work, harsh, fierce, rough in speech, a woman who dominates her supporters. A wife like this is called a wife and a tyrant. One, always compassionate and sympathetic, guards her husband as a mother with a son, who protects the wealth he earns. A wife like this is called a wife and a mother. Five, he who holds her husband in high regard as younger sister with her elder brother, careful to do tasks well, following her husband's will, a wife like this is called a wife and a sister. Six, one who rejoices when she sees her husband as if seeing a friend after a long absence, well-raised, virtuous, devoted to her husband, a wife like this is called a friend and a wife. One who remains patient and calm when threatened with violence by the rod, who tolerates her husband with a mind free of hate patient accommodating to her husband's intention a wife like this is called a wife and a helper the type of wives here called a killer a thief and a tyrant unwholesome harsh disrespectful if the body's break up go to hell but the type of wives here called mother, sister, friend, and helper, me. virtual long-restraint, with the bodies, break up, go to heaven. A man, Sujata, have these seven kinds of wives. Now, which one are you? Beginning today, Father sir, let the perfectly enlightened one consider me a wife who is like a helper.
1: All right. Thank you, Dani. So here, the Buddha's talking to this wife because he was in this home of a household practitioner and there was an uproar there was this ruckus going on and the buddha's like what's going on over there and it's explained to him this challenge and of course a enlightened being being brought into a home and being invited there is there to help people there to share teachings to help create more harmony in the home so where a Buddha sees some challenges and some difficulties in the household. He's going to offer some teachings to be able to help these people because that's why he was actually invited to come there in the first place. And he just happens to be speaking to a woman here. This very easily could have been a husband in another situation. So it's important when you read the Buddhist teachings that you don't just read it as. You know, this is what a wife should do, right? Don't look at his teachings in isolation. Instead, look at it from all sides, that this is what a wife, how a wife can practice, but this is also how a husband can practice as well. And the Buddha is explaining that there's these seven kind of life partners, essentially what he's explaining, and that we can be one of these. And he describes each one of them. And then he eventually asks the the young lady, you know, what type of wife are you? and she understands now that you know she's causing these problems in the household and that she's choosing to now be you know this wife who is also a helper which is the seventh one which is one who remains patient and calm when threatened with violence by the rod who tolerates her husband with a mind of free of hate patient accommodating to her husband's intentions a wife like this is called a wife and a helper But remember, this can also be a husband as well, so it's not just, you know, one-sided here. So this can be helpful for you to see the type of partner that you would like to be. Of course, if you're having a relationship with a partner, you're not interested in being any of these first three. You know, that would be problematic in the relationship. And when you see these things, if you have any of these qualities, you would like to get rid of them so that you're no longer doing those things. And instead you would like to cultivate these other qualities of these four and then when you read these you're like okay well let me cultivate all these qualities not that you have to pick one or the other and say i'm only going to be that type of person but instead cultivate all these qualities cultivate compassion and be sympathetic have this situation where you're holding your partner in high regard have this situation where you consider your partner to be a friend Uh, And then also be patient and calm as well. Not having this hate. Instead, be patient and accommodating. So I would encourage you to read through this if you're in a relationship or you're looking to be in a relationship and cultivate all four of these different qualities that the Buddha is describing in each four, all four of these. That would be ideal for you. And the Buddha is explaining here and you'll see in certain teachings where he does talk about what occurs if we do one thing or the other, not as a way to scare you or fear you or guilt you or shame you, but he talks about someone who's one of those first three is ultimately going to be reborn in the hell realm, in the lower realm. And then a being who is practicing in those other ways, those other four, would at the breakup of the body or death be reborn in the heavenly realm. Again, the goal is not to be reborn at all but instead to get to enlightenment and actually escape the whole cycle of rebirth. But should somebody fall short, then this is what is going to transpire. Any questions on this chapter?
3: Uh, Yes. Jan has a question.
6: Thank you, Manal. Thank you, teacher David. Um, There's something I've been wondering for a little while now, Um, because I'm involved in several social justice groups, um, i i feel that there's a i'm I'm having trouble understanding um situations where i i sense that somebody ought to stick up for themselves i feel that i understand what the buddha is saying intellectually that we should um be compassionate and helpful um but when i see things like you know you should be patient if somebody beats you with a rod you know, in the historical context of that, but I also feel that um, it's valuable for us to figure out ways that um, we can improve how people are treated by society. We shouldn't have slavery, that's to me wrong, right? Um, we shouldn't have situations where um, people can't drink from a water fountain or sit have to sit at the back of the bus because of the color of their skin. It's not good for society. So I'm struggling a bit with trying to reconcile my views on s- social justice with some of those readings that we're, um, we're trying to understand. Any any guidance would be very much appreciated. Thank you.
1: Sure. So it's important to see clearly that the Buddha is not saying that when somebody is is being beaten, that they should remain patient and calm. He's saying here that if you're threatened with violence to remain patient and calm, the reason why is that if somebody is threatening you with violence and you allow your mind to be shaken up, then once again, the mind's uncalm. There's not mindfulness. There's not concentration. So there's not going to be access to wisdom to be able to make wise decisions in that situation. So there you might actually make the situation worse. So he's not saying that you should accept a beating. Right? He's just saying, OK, if someone threatens you with violence, remain patient and calm. He's not saying that somebody should threaten their life partner with violence. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying that if you experience this situation, remain patient and calm. He's not even saying that you should stay in the relationship if you're threatened with violence. Instead, he's just saying remain patient and calm because the opposite of that is not going to result in any beneficial outcome for you. So what you're describing and what the Buddha describing is actually the same. I think you might just have read something a little bit different here in terms of thinking that the Buddha was suggesting that we should allow a beating to occur. Uh, you mentioned like sticking up for yourself, right? Uh, in certain situations, when we think about sticking up for ourselves, that's that self, right? That's that personal existence view from that first fetter. Thinking that with arrogance or pride, that ego kicks in like, okay, this person just degraded me with words and now I've got to fight back. But this doesn't actually create any beneficial outcome that if somebody is aggressive and hostile with you and is vindictive and hateful, what benefit does it come from that when we become hateful, vindictive and hostile and aggressive back? It actually doesn't create anything. So when we think about sticking up for ourselves, that's where the ego is coming in because of that personal existence view and that conceit, where the mind wants to stick up for ourselves. We're in a situation where someone's being hostile or aggressive or vindictive or hateful towards this being that we call David. I would just walk away. I would just leave because there's nothing that I can say that's going to get through to that person they've already made up their mind through their moral conduct and through their lack of wisdom. I'm going to be vindictive. I'm going to be hateful. I'm going to be aggressive. I'm going to be hostile. And I'm going to vent this at David. And if I was that same way back, it just means my own mind is shaken up by their own words. And if I were to remain in that situation, then it's not really going to be beneficial so depending on where i'm at you know if i was just outside somewhere i would just probably get up and leave and just ignore the whole situation i don't need to fight mentally or or verbally or physically in order to defend myself because there's no self here it's just mm-hmm. like okay i'm going to choose to no longer be involved in this where is if I was at a temple teaching, for example, and somebody was aggressive and hostile and angry towards me, I wouldn't get up and leave because I'm sitting there teaching. But I would ignore this person and just continue to teach. And if they continue to be hostile and aggressive, I would have to take some other action of asking them to leave or asking somebody else to escort them out or something like this. But there's nothing that says in the Buddhist teachings, or an enlightened being would even decide to do is to remain in a situation where there's abuse, either physically, verbally, sexually, or otherwise. Oftentimes we have this image of Buddhism or the Buddha or enlightened people as being passive. And that's how we maintain our Mental state of enlightenment is by just being passive, but that's actually not true because that would be one side of the spectrum. The other side of the spectrum would be fighting and aggressive and hostile, but instead we need to find that middle way where we're not contributing to the hostility and the aggression, but we're also not just sitting back and letting people, you know, throw blows up against our head either and knock us out and knock us unconscious. So we've got to find that middle way where. We're not standing up for ourselves out of ego, arrogance, and pride, because that's not going to create any beneficial result. But we're also not just sitting there letting someone walk all over you. But oftentimes, walking all over us is oftentimes people's perception based on their own ego, that if somebody says something negative, they feel like they have to defend themselves because of that self and the ego that's there. But when you get rid of that self, when you get rid of that personal existence, when you get rid of that ego, then your mind can remain unaffected when somebody says something harsh or aggressive or hostile or anything like that. Does that help you, Jan?
6: Thank you. Yeah, could I just clarify one other thing? Thank you. Um, I think when I said sticking up for yourself, I wasn't thinking of speaking to somebody Um, immediately I was thinking more of for example if I discovered that all the women in my workplace were being paid less than the men at the same you know job level I would raise that as an issue with my union I would try to make sure that um, my workplace is paying everybody equitably so that's what I would consider sticking up for myself, right, is to just insist that we be treated fairly and follow whatever channels are are available to do that. Um, So I was thinking more of situations like that, rather than, you know, trying to myself, with an angry outburst, defend myself, I'm thinking more of taking legal actions or, you know, whatever sort of actions are present to correct unfair social situations.
1: So would you say maybe like advocating for improvements for the workplace?
6: Yes, things of that nature or improvements in society. You know, if there's um, in the U.S. historically, for example, um, areas have been redlined. So um, people of color have not been given homeowner loans to buy properties in certain areas. So I feel that that's wrong. And. It's worth it for society, worthwhile for society to correct situations like that, that anybody should be allowed to buy a property in any area rather than being prevented because of the color of their skin. So I would want to work to correct that that situation like that.
1: And if you did that with a mind that was patient and calm, would that be more helpful in that situation?
6: Absolutely. I, I totally would agree with that.
1: Yeah, so that's what the Buddha's teaching yeah. You yeah. here yeah. is to remain patient and calm no matter what you're facing. Even if you're facing this threat of violence, remain patient and calm because that's what's going to produce the best results. Whereas if somebody's being hateful and vindictive to us and we're that same way back, it's not going to produce any beneficial results. So, in a situation like what you're describing, there's nothing about what you just said that would be opposite of what the Buddha teaches. It's actually right in line with what the Buddha teaches, that we should have loving kindness and compassion for all beings. So males and females should be paid equally, or people of different ethnicities and different cultures and different backgrounds should all have the same opportunities. That's part of the Buddhist teachings on loving kindness, on compassion, on sympathetic joy, and equanimity as well.
3: Thank you teacher. I appreciate
1: it. Yeah, you're welcome. Any other questions on this chapter? There are no more
3: questions on this chapter.
1: All right. Well, I'll just end with suggesting to you guys that if you would like to study for next week, we're going to be in chapters 21 through 30 of this same book, volume 8. So you could read before class if you like, and then that way when you come to class, you'll might have some questions. Uh, Whereas if you don't have a chance to read at all, sure, you can still come to class and you'll benefit from our time together. But if you read before and or after class, you'll actually get a lot more benefit in studying along and and learning these teachings. So we're going to be progressing into the next 10 chapters next week. So thank you all for joining for today's class. If you would like to join tomorrow's class in the group learning program which is sunday we're doing a special kind of unofficial start to the group learning program which is a class where students are just going to get a chance to ask me any questions they like about my life or my childhood or my adult life or anything that I was involved with in the past or that I'm involved with now or something that I'm going to be doing in the future. You guys are welcome to ask any and all questions that you like as a way to get to know me better. And if there's any struggles or difficulties that I've had in my life that can help you, then you're welcome to ask any of those questions and I'll share any insight or wisdom that I gained along the way to help you in your life. Uh, or if there's any certain struggles that you're encountering now, or you'd like to know, you know, what were the challenges and the most difficult periods of me learning and practicing this path? Or, you know, what's it like to live in a house with with a wife and a son while still practicing these teachings? And how do you find the time to write all those books while you're still a father and you live in a household environment? And you know, How do you find the time to teach all these classes and give all the personal guidance and all the things you do? You can ask me any and all questions that you like that are helpful to benefit your life. And then next Wednesday, uh, which is about five days from now, we're going to actually have the official restart of the group learning program. And in that class on Wednesday... I'm going to be sharing with you kind of how to get the most benefit out of the group learning program and how to progress forward in the group learning program. So I'm going to be starting you off with all of that on Wednesday. So thank you all for joining for today's class. I'll see you either next Saturday, maybe tomorrow and Sunday's class and or next Wednesday. So we'll see you then have a very lovely rest of your day.
0: Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast.